So this uh, morning, I want to continue with the investigation of the uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness. This is the uh, third session, and we'll, I think we'll have uh, four more uh, that will explore the uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Uh, the first two talks are there uh, on Dharma Seed. You can listen to them. The first one was an overview of the entire uh, Four Foundations, and then the last one was three weeks ago, and it was a uh, discussion of the first foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the body. So I want to uh, continue with that today and do a brief review of where we were. How many of you were not here last time? Not here at the last session. Okay. Um, okay. So, of course, mindfulness is the translation of sati and refers to this fundamental capacity, which is the primary practice that we do here at Spirit Rock. And it's this capacity that is very much entering into Western culture very, very quickly. It's the capacity to uh, be present, to be attentive, to experience in the moment, to know what is happening, to be uh, non-reactive, to uh, be able to um, be open to what is occurring without trying to <coughs> control experience, and is taken to be the basis for insight, transformation, and ultimately liberation. You know, you can see at the beginning of the text where it says uh, that this is the direct path for the purification of beings. Very, very strong claim made that mindfulness itself, that this noticing, uh, this noticing of experience, this being present with experience, has the power to uh, cut through our conditioning, our confusion, our reactivity, uh, the sources of um, suffering, the, the reasons that we are reactive, that we compulsively push away things, people, experiences, or grab hold of the same. And, and so we are given in this text the different ways to develop mindfulness. And this is, again, uh, partly I want to explore the text and have this be accessible so you can use the text or use the uh, understanding of the text as part of your practice. And partly asking the question, how do we work with this text in the present times? How do we understand the different kinds of mindfulness? How do we make it work in our lives, in the contemporary world? Are there additional ways that we need to uh, frame things or understand mindfulness that can help, it make, uh, help make it work for us? So I have both of those aims in the series of talks and, and in guiding practice to both uh, be able to have the text and the tradition be more accessible and then to uh, have this be a support for our own practice. So the four foundations of mindfulness are these four areas to attend to. Uh, if you want to go into uh, considerably more detail, there's a wonderful book uh, called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization, which is in the uh, bookstore and is a very uh, detailed 
uh, analysis of this 10-page uh, text uh, with connecting it with uh, the uh, other texts on mindfulness, the other core texts of the tradition, and really giving a sense of the uh, richness of this sense of mindfulness. Uh, so this, if you want to go in more detail, this is done by a German scholar practitioner, so it's grounded in practice, but very, very wonderful from a scholarly point of view also. And uh, you, can, you can get quite a bit more uh, depth there than, um, you know, than you might find. Please. His name is Analayo, A-N-A-L-A-Y-O. You know. um, Marty and Debbie, I think uh, we don't need to do anything with the extra handouts until maybe afterwards, because, except if people... You can leave them right on the table. We, yeah, we don't need to do anything with them. Other, we want everyone to have a copy of the text on the Foundations of Mindfulness, but if you don't have one now, just look on with a neighbor. So, uh, otherwise, we're, we're all set. Okay. So the, uh, very interesting that the four foundations are about attending in these four areas. And again, the Buddha isn't saying just be mindful in general. He's saying attend. And Analayo in his book, he has a very nice way of saying it. He talks about the four ways of contemplating or the four areas that we attend to. And I think we could attend to others, but the, the four are very basic. The first foundation is mindfulness of the body. The second foundation is mindfulness of feeling tone, what we'll look at next time. Uh, awareness of the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or, or neutral, which is very, very crucial. And this would be the most, uh, again, the least predicted of the areas. If you were to look to someone in contemporary times and say, what are the four areas of your life that you most need to pay attention to with mindfulness? might not come up with a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So this is really part of the uh, core teachings and, you know, the basic insight and, in some sense, genius of the Buddha to attend to the sense of pleasant, especially when it's strong, knowing that when something's pleasant and we are not clearly mindful of what's pleasant, we will tend to grab hold. You know, look at your life in the next week. <laughs> see what happens. Or when there is something unpleasant and we are not mindful, we will tend to push away reactive and be reactive. We can see that in terms of unpleasant sensations in the body or unpleasant uh, things that people say to us or unpleasant news that we will tend to contract and be reactive to the extent that we are not mindful and not wise. And the idea is that that uh, in turn sets in motion a great deal of suffering. Well, we'll unpack that in more depth. It's a really a, a wonderful teaching, and it's something that really can give energy to our practice. And one of the main aims of these weeks is to have there be a number of different ways that we can practice with more depth so that we, uh, you know, we get um, energized and inspired in our practice. You know, again, so it's, it's, it's not so... Uh, uncommon uh, to have our practice be a little bit stuck, pleasant, calming, but uninspired. <laughs> Has anyone ever experienced that in your practice? And so w partly what we're doing here is to energize. We bring in partly the factor of investigation or inquiry, which is one of the factors of awakening, to say, okay, look here, look carefully, look at that. You know, 
uh, and and this is where again we're bringing we bring in some teaching and uh, we give some guidance don't just be generally mindful but look in this place and there are a number of instructions for mindfulness of the body so the third foundation is called mindfulness of uh, citta c-i-t-t-a which we I would unpack as mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. Really, uh, sometimes said we could say mind and heart states. In the uh, Buddhist Asian languages, citta really brings together what we would call mind and heart or thought and emotion. And they don't have the same, the languages don't have the same uh, distinctions that we do. <laughs> they tend to have it just be uh, citta and body. That's it, right? and more like a mind-body distinction in which emotion fits under mind, which is sometimes how we have it in Western languages. But we also sometimes have a threefold distinction uh, in terms of the cognitive, the emotional, and the bodily. And that, that does not uh, map onto what we have in the Asian languages. Quite interesting. There are certain implications of that. Um, so as I mentioned last time, there is no word uh, that is a cognate of the word emotion in the Pali and Sanskrit languages. It's interesting. So they just divide up experience differently. So the th- uh, and the fourth foundation is the mindfulness of particularly the larger patterns of experience and the guidance that when, as we'll see when we get to it is particularly to see our experience through the through Buddhist frameworks, uh, such as the Four Noble Truths the teaching of the uh, aggregates or the um, constituents of personality, and a number of different teachings, the seven factors of awakening. And those are like frameworks that we can then look more carefully at experience. And as I said last time, I think the most important one is looking at our experience and seeing when does suffering arise and what are the roots of suffering and how do we transform those roots and have that experience not involve suffering. That's the most significant. And, um, and we could also, I think, add to that. And I tend to interpret the fourth foundation as also involving mindfulness of my personal patterns of experience. When do I get, uh, when do I get triggered? What triggers me? Um, what are my core patterns by which I get lost? What are my top ten uh, ways that I uh, lose mindfulness? You know, and we can, we can, we could see that. Okay, I get my top ten in, might include. Okay, I get triggered in self-judgment. I get lost in anger. I get um, uh, just into obsessive thinking. I have um, you know extensive fantasy life. <laughs> you know, I get I just go into daydreams a lot. Okay, well, it's very helpful to know what are the top five for you, and to really see that and and to have a sense of some of the larger patterns, whereas the first three foundations are more about the constituents of experience. How can I be mindful of the body, of feeling tone, of thoughts, and of emotions? So that's really the, uh, the context of the uh, teaching of mindfulness of the body. I mentioned last time, and I mentioned it a lot, that I think that mindfulness of the body is a central practice Uh, close to the central practice for being mindful in a highly cognitive and uh, electronic culture. 
where we, you know, you know, just in traveling, it's very interesting to go through airports and to see how many people spend a good part of their day staring at electronic devices and doing, you know, subtle manipulations with their fingers or thumbs, you know, and just to travel. <laughs> For those of you listening at a future date on Dharma Seed, the laughter comes because right at that mention, an electronic device went off <laughs> and could be heard by, could be heard by, by everyone. Um, and so this mindfulness of the body is uh, something that takes practice. For me, when I was first practicing, and I mentioned how I was, uh, had been athletic, but I think not aware of my body. And when I first practiced, the greatest revelation at first of meditation practice, mindfulness practice, was that I uh, was more aware of my senses. And I could actually feel my body, and this was a revolution and a revelation for me. And that I could actually notice uh, the sensations of my body, that I could actually have focus on a sunset or on my food and actually be with it and realize how much in the past I hadn't noticed that at all. You know, I would like certain food, but would I really taste it? Not that much. Most of the time when I would be eating, I would be talking, thinking, doing anything but tasting. Of course, there would be you know, a certain percentage where taste was unavoidable. <laughs> certain percentage of my experience. But that was my initial experience, that, that uh, coming back to the body was part of the uh, deep uh, fruit of meditation practice originally. And I think probably many of us have had that experience. It depends on when in our lives we took up meditation. That certainly was the case for me. Some of you may have taken up meditation after you already had done yoga or done body practices or done other practices which brought you back to your the body. So I've talked about the value of that both for um, helping our mindfulness to be there during the day, you know, so that we're not uh, so much in a exclusively cognitive flow of experience, which is, I think, the cultural pressure, both through the media and I think even before that, that was, that was of course, a tendency to have uh, thought be the primary experience. And uh, I remember at the end of our time last time, people asked, you know, well, why is this so important? And asked me, I had said that I thought that actually mindfulness of the body has uh, uh, tremendous potential for cultural healing and even cultural revolution. And someone asked me, okay, well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and uh, it's also expressed, I think, in the quotation on the second page, you don't have to look at it now, but by Reginald Ray, which I gave last time, that, uh, we had, that when we would align, at, let's say, our, uh, be able to be aware of our bodies and our emotions and our thoughts and not have the uh, thinking or cognitive apparatus be so much in control of experience, and so much dominating experience that this actually leads to a different kind of culture where we would be uh, in touch with our bodies, in touch with our emotions, have a different mind-body-heart relationship. I think it would have implications for health, for relationships, for being emotionally intelligent, for 
having a better understanding of mind-body relationship, and I think that you know, would have a, a lot of implications uh, socially and culturally in terms of a different relationship to the earth, different ways we handle conflict. I could go on. And, but I think that uh, a lot starts just by coming back to the body. You know, and I could unpack that. I think it is uh, not just important for our, our helping us to be more mindful in daily life, but I think it has, again, these larger implications. And, uh, and you know, so that we, I think we, may, we are some of the potential for that, for that shift. Again, we can come back to that if, if, we, if we need to. Um, so I mentioned that uh, last time that we also, uh, in the text, it says near the beginning of the text, uh, ways that we practice, uh, that we, um, right at the end of uh, section, th- it's a section, uh, well, it's the third paragraph, uh, one abides uh, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So this is, with our mindfulness, we have good energy, we're, we're diligent, we have strong energy, we are uh, fully aware, means that we're knowing what's happening. Mindfulness, when it's uh, really continued, brings in clarity of mind, it also tends to bring in the wisdom factor. and having put away covetousness and grief for the world can be unpacked as meaning that we are non-reactive. We are not grabbing hold of things, we are not uh, uh, grasping, and we are not caught in aversion. That mindfulness involves this balance, which we could call non-reactive. We could say, it's not really there in the text, but we could also say non-judgmental. Mindfulness is like that. So we went last time through the uh, first three types of practices of mindfulness of the body. Uh, The first is mindfulness of breathing, which is our core practice. And we um, could see that the, uh, you know, that in the the text, uh, this is the first practice that one does. Uh, In some of the uh, other versions of uh, this text in the Chinese tradition, one actually does mindfulness of breathing a little later, and you start with mindfulness of posture and mindfulness of movement, that it's taken to be a little more accessible. So again, why do we start with mindfulness of the body? It's easily accessible. Everyone can connect with breath. Everyone can connect with posture. You know, we can need some training to do that. So the first three practices are the primary ones that we teach at Spirit Rock, and these are the ones that I invited you to work with uh, in the last weeks. And again, I would invite you in the next week, really commit to staying with at least one body practice. Uh, maybe, maybe two of them. It could be the breath in your formal meditation, and then try to have some awareness of your body in your different activities. Uh, these, the first, mindfulness of the breath. The second, uh, mindfulness of the four postures. And the third, uh, third practice, is called uh, full awareness. It's mindfulness, it's being fully aware or as close to fully aware in the different activities. You know, here it says uh, uh, one's acts in full awareness. This is on the second page. When looking ahead, looking away, who acts in full awareness while um, 
uh, flexing and extending the limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing the robes, carrying the robe and bowls. Basically, in the different activities, we try to bring awareness. Um, you know, we could start just by, you know, if we're relatively new, we could start by having a period in which we do walking meditation. I mentioned how one way that's simple is just whenever you're walking and you're not, you know, you're not engaged in something, just be aware of the body or see if you can find more uh, times uh, when there, you're not doing other things, when you're just walking or you're just, sometimes when you're just eating and you don't have to, maybe you're eating by yourself, just to bring awareness to the body. This is part of the training. This is what we would do. This is what we do in retreats. We say when you're walking, be aware of your walking. When you're eating, be aware of, of your eating. Just be aware of the sensations of the body and take that on as a practice. And concretely, it could mean that you just find times when you say, I'm just going to walk now and be aware. And you do that. And I mentioned how when I was a student, I said, every time I walk, it's going to be walking meditation. And I was walking a lot because I didn't have a car. And I would just say, I'm doing walking meditation. I'm not going to you know, ruminate on whatever I ruminate on walking on the streets of Boston, you know, where I, where I was at the time. So, the invitation is to choose one of these practices and really stay with it. I would say, be with the breath in your formal meditation, and then be with some other way of bringing mindfulness of the body into daily life. I mentioned another uh, tool, not exactly found in the text, which I work with a lot in speech, can you be aware of your body when you're interacting with someone else? Sometimes it's just, can I feel my hand on my knee? Or can I feel my feet on the floor or my, my um, contact with the chair or the cushion? And this is another, these are other ways of bringing mindfulness into daily life. You know, I think, so this is a, a practice that takes time. Some of you have done a lot of this. You know, if you do yoga, just really be aware of the body in yoga. Um, and there are ways of also, a practice that I did for several years, actually instead of being with the breath, I was just aware of my whole body. And that was my practice for, um, for um, several years, including retreats. I would just sit there all day and be aware of my whole body instead of the breath. That's another p possible practice if you want to strengthen mindfulness of the body. Just be aware of the whole body. I did it enough so it was there in daily life much more easily and, and became an awareness that could just be present. Helps tremendously in terms of uh, being involved in speech and interaction. And as I've said sometimes, when I give a talk, I try to stay aware of my body. And it's quite interesting. It, it actually sh can really feel the shift away from a, as it were, cognitively centered experience into an experience which is um, in a sense, de-centered. De and there, the lived experience, there's experience of the body, the emotions are available, the heart's available, and the thoughts are also happening, but uh, one's not dominating. In other words, there's access to all as parts of experience. And it's quite interesting. You know, um, one of the persons I learned a lot from in terms of mindfulness of the body was John Travis. And he gave the quotation, which I have at the end of the uh, set of quotations. I was talking to him one day and complaining about 
how we in the West don't have as much support as people in monasteries. And, and I said, you know, look at all those Tibetans in their monastery. They just have all these reminders all day long to practice. And we don't have that. It's not right. No, it's blah, blah, blah. And I was complaining. He said, right at that moment, he said, let your body be your monastery. And that really struck me. I said, whoa. <laughs> I feel like I was just channeling Sylvia. You know how she says, whoa. <laughs> she says, whoa. And um, I just said, something really struck me. I said, that really hit me. You know, let your body be your monastery. Because if you can have your body awareness, it's available all the time. And that can bring you back to mindfulness, just being with the body. And so that really clicked with me and has stayed. So let me say a little bit about the three further practices which we can, can see, uh, one of which we did. The three further practices uh, that are not uh, traditionally done, one is called, uh, here it's called, uh, you know, the section four called foulness, the body parts. The fifth is the elements and the sixth is called the nine charnel ground contemplations. Let me just talk uh, somewhat briefly about these. The, um, there is a traditional meditation on what are called the 32 parts of the body. And maybe some of you have done that. It's taught here primarily by Bob Stahl, who lives in Santa Cruz. And he also has a website called 32 Parts. <laughs> and it is a traditional meditation, which uh, we generally don't do, which I think I have only done once or twice. Uh, not, and I don't, haven't done it regularly, but it's, it's a practice whereby one, can, one is aware of the different parts of the body. Some of them are more easily accessible to awareness, you know, like being aware of my hand or my hair or something like that. And some of them are more internal organs, which are uh, not, at least initially, accessible. The, uh, just a word about the translation uh, foulness. I think that's a problematic translation. Uh, the, I think the word is as, asubha, which means not beautiful. And it's the whole point of, some of uh, these last three uh, meditations on the body. In some ways, what we have here is a progression where we move from more gross to more subtle aspects of the body. Okay? And in particular, these last three are also bringing in the wisdom dimension by which we see the body as not a solid unit. But we see rather that the body is a kind of collection of different experiences, of causes and conditions, that it's impermanent, that it's made up of all sorts of causes, that it arises, that it passes, that it passes away, that it's made up of the elements, that it's made up of the body parts, and so we come to see the body as a flow of causes and conditions. And a lot of the motivation here, uh, and I think this is especially in a monastic context, but it's particularly to work through any attachment that one has to one's body. And that's a big deal for us, isn't it? So is that an understatement? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so... The, uh, maybe I'll get back to, maybe a more direct translation would, for that, for, instead of foulness, it, which is how it's often translated, it would be not beautiful, meaning 
essentially not something that's worth getting attached to. And this gets into a whole area, but I want to I want to speak generally about what I think is the deeper meaning of this that could that um, is valuable for us, and that is really to you we might use some of these practices and see where is their attachment to the body, and you know there's a lot you know again we can see that uh, in various ways you know we can have a uh, attachment to a certain way that our body is. I can be attached to being um, thin, being young, being um, of a certain image, and so forth. And what happens when we don't fit that image, right? We know it's a tremendous source of suffering, right? You know, huge source. I mean, one of the most profound places where that suffering occurs is for teenage girls. I think many of you know that, right? Probably firsthand with uh, your children, but also maybe you've seen studies where, where conforming to body image is a source of tremendous suffering, and as well as all sorts of reactions that lead to, you know, uh, anorexia and bulimia and so forth. I think we know that, right? That there's so much emphasis on a certain image of the body, particularly the female body, that it's very, very. Uh, strong conditioning, and it can be connected with a lot of suffering. You know, or how much suffering is there connected with the body aging? It's a lot, right? I mean, I've talked to, again, I've talked to, I've talked particularly, some of the images issues, I've talked particularly with women who say, you know, I can remember one conversation, person said, you know, um, you know, I really used to be so beautiful, and now I'm 60 years old. And I really, I don't feel beautiful at all, right? And uh, again, person very aware, but the conditioning is very, very strong, right? It's very, very strong. And we could, I could go in a lot of detail there. Or, or the uh, getting attached to the body, not aging, right? Um, I think um, very, very strong in, in all sorts of ways. We do all sorts of things culturally to look as if we're not aging you know, or to pretend we're not aging. And again, I think what the teachings here are about the body is just to see it as it is and to see where there is attachment to um, stopping time, for example, or to looking a certain way. And again, very, very deep in our identity. You know, and, you know, I mentioned, uh, I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but, you know, I think uh, probably all of us uh, go through being teenagers and have a sense that certain parts of my body are just, were wrongly put together. <laughs> Does anyone, anyone relate to that? I mean, for me, I mean, they weren't. You know, they weren't totally devastating, but they were, you know, teenagers, it doesn't have to be totally devastating to be a big thing, <laughs> right? So I think for me, growing up as a teenager, I thought that my neck was too long, my ears were too big, my feet were too big, and, um, you, know, you know, I remember, you know, just a lot of things. I remember, I remember we did, you know, when I was 15 or something, we did something like, um, computer dating, and, I w and we were asked to say, what is your level of attractiveness? 
<laughs> on a scale of one to five. And you know, I remember talking to friends and saying, well, you know, you know, is it is it the best or is it almost the best or you know, what do we do? You know, <laughs> what do we say? You know, we've got to have truth in advertising, but you know, and just there's there's so much there, right? And I think, you know, to make this more contemporary, I, I would interpret some of these practices as the culturally maybe culturally appropriate uh, emphases of their times, particularly for monks and nuns. Uh, to really look into where there is attachment to the body. And it's a huge thing uh, for us. You know, I'm thinking of, I've talked with Anna Douglas, who's been doing a lot of work on aging, and thought of inviting her here for a series you know, that we could do, that I could do with her in some way. She's explored it a lot more than me. And so I think that's my sort of uh, introduction to these three practices, you know, that they are partly to see where is their attachment to the body, to the image of the body, to the body being a certain way. And secondly, can I see the body more as a product of causes and conditions? You know, in the case of our image and so forth, our sense of the body is also very much a product of cultural conditioning, right? My sense of who I am, what my body is, is very much a product of that. And it's going to look very different if we're in another culture, or probably even 50 years ago, right? Or maybe 50 years from now. So I think for me, part of the effect of these latter three practices is that, to see where there's attachment, number one, and to see, uh, to see some of the conditioning which goes into our sense of the body. You know, you know some of it is more cultural, some of it's more personal, some of it's more familial. And some of it's more universal, you know, just about the, the uh, aging process. And a lot of cultures, of course, aging was seen as coming to being an elder and seen as much more positive. You know, so it's, you know, and, and I think a lot of people are trying to bring that back into, I think that's what Anna's motivation is partly, you know, to really have this tradition of the elders. You know, the, the main Buddhist tradition that is connected with Spirit Rock is called the Theravada. You know what that means? The way of the elders. Hmm. Yeah. So briefly on these three. So the we would if we were practicing body parts, and you could go to the website thirty-two parts of the body, and look at this. We would actually try to just be with the body, uh, you know, one part at a time, and we actually bring attention and we go through the different parts. I think, again, for those two motivations. We did the practice with the elements, and I, and I think that is a maybe less culturally bound practice. Uh, that, and I hope you found that very interesting, to see, can I see my body as made up of these four elements? Can I tune into the fire, the water, the air element in my experience of the body? And also to see it outside. I, you know, I, again, I was inspired to offer that by from this retreat called the Dancing Buddha, of doing this with movement right on the cliffs overlooking the Pacific and the, with the hot sun out there. So we could relate to <clears throat> the sun as fire. We could relate to the ocean outside, the water inside. And it was very, very moving, you know, to have that sense of the connection with the natural elements outside. You know, and it's even, you know, you can even see something we don't give that much attention to. If you look right at the bottom of the uh, left-hand column on the uh, second page, 
It says that in this way he abides contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. We generally communicate mindfulness practice primarily as inner practice. And the Analaya interprets this external as something like meaning, I contemplate the body outside, I contemplate the the tree as a body outside, or another body of another person. Or it might be doing this elements practice, I contemplate the element of the water outside, I contemplate the element of the water inside. For me, it's a very, a very uh, beautiful practice. And again, we come to see the body in a different way, you know, uh, and as not so different from what is outside. So it's, again, seeing the body as made up of conditions which are not just about this personal body. And then the last one, the charnel ground contemplations, is also, I think, to bring in the wisdom factor. You can see that uh, basically these are different stages of decomposition decomposition of a body. And again, we do not offer these at Spirit Rock, <laughs> customarily. Uh, but some of you probably have done this. If you've, if you've been with dead bodies, or I remember that I was once, I was once living in the mountains in Virginia, and uh, there was a, a sheep that uh, ha- was um, uh, caught in kind of a thicket trying to cross a creek and actually died. And uh, the body began decomposing. And then I was living there, and I, uh, I watched that over a number of days. It was, very, it was fairly intense to see, to, and maybe some of you have had that experience. And what I think the aim is, you can see that um, you know, at the, at the top of the right-hand column, it says, this body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. It's partly a wisdom teaching here about impermanence. So you see, towards the end of this, we start bringing in the wisdom dimension. Mindfulness leads to wisdom. There's a wisdom component. My body arises, my body passes away. It's very similar to other reflections where we re- reflect on impermanence and death. And... I think this was done to, again, partly to see that the body is the result of causes and conditions. And at a certain point, those causes and conditions lead to death. You know, as well as to see where is there attachment. Is there attachment that denies death? Again, very, very powerful in our culture. Right? We know that. You know, we know that conditioning. And that's been changing since uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and other people brought attention to, the, to death and dying, and it's been a lot of effort to make that be more of a part of life. But still, very strong conditioning for us. So this practice would involve actually being with decaying bodies and charnel grounds, which you know, we don't have in Marin County or in Berkeley or whatever. But um, that's what this practice would be about. And there, you know, there's some contemporary ways of doing that. I know Bob Stahl, again, Santa Cruz, very interested. He offers every year or two he takes teachers, and I guess he could take other people, he takes people to um, autopsy room, you know, to really see the dead body and to see how an autopsy is done. And I remember, I haven't done that, but I have, I, I did see a film once by a filmmaker named Stan Brackage that he presented, which was a three-hour film of an autopsy. 
and about 80% of the audience left within the first 20 minutes. <laughs> I stayed through, and I, did, I wasn't in meditation that time, I was a student, but I stayed through it, and it led to a kind of shift of consciousness after a certain point. I had to stay with certain kinds of dread or, you know, just the, you know, the very uncomfortable feelings. But when I stayed with that, there was kind of a breaking through to a sense of these as causes and conditions. This is something that's just happening. This is form, this is color. And it was quite, actually quite exhilarating to stay for the whole three hours and to be with that process. I know Bob takes people to explore that. And there, I know there are different there have been different exhibits at museums that do something similar. I think there's a, there's a lot, there are actually a lot of uh, bodies in, in a recent exhibit. I forget the name of that exhibit, but, but the body show? Yeah, yeah. So maybe in closing, my, uh, I wanted to go through all of those practices. The elements practice may be the most accessible, if you found that um, interesting. For me, it's enlivening. It, it can bring that sense of energy, of interest. Oh, let me see the water element in my body. Let me see, feel where there's heat. Let me feel where there's pressure. Let me feel where there, you know, let me just feel the bone, feel the solidity of the body. And so th- these, these are a variety of practices. Again, for most of us, the core mindfulness practices may be the first three. I think we've more or less chosen to focus on those, mindfulness of the body in different postures, in different activities, and then mindfulness of the breath. So my invitation would be to choose one or two core body practices and strengthen that mindfulness of the body. Again, there are different meditative experiences. You can be with the breath. Again, that experience of just being with the whole body can be very, very powerful. So I'll invite those practices for next time. We'll have a chance to check in. But we also have a little bit of time for uh, discussion or questions or anything that would help uh, clarify this practice of mindfulness of the body. So let's sit for about 30 seconds or a minute just to pause and we'll come back with some questions and discussion. questions, reflections of any kind? Kind of different angles, right? There's the, there's the more mindfulness of the body and be aware of the body, be present, and then there's some of that material on attachment to the body, which goes in like a whole other direction, right? <laughs> it's quite interesting. So anything on any of those uh, areas? Please. I mean, I sit in a chair because of my knee, but I'm, yeah. always, I'm always like yearning to sit on the floor. Yeah. Uh. So the question about is it, would you say is it easier to drop into mindfulness uh, sitting on the floor as opposed to sitting on a chair? Um, you can experiment some. I mean, you could uh, you know, generally, um, 
the alert, alertness, the straight spine, the connection with the floor is the most important thing. And you can't do, you know, I mean, I, I have a knee issue as well. That's fairly recent. So I sit on a chair most of the time. I can sit cross-legged some. Personally, I don't notice that much difference, but I sat, on, I sat cross-legged for a lot of years. So it's, but right now I don't notice particularly that much difference. It's, there's, you know, there may be some advantages, but certainly, you know, great depths of awareness are possible sitting on a chair. I know that, so, um, so mostly probably, I mean, sometimes you could maybe lie down and see what that's like, or, um, you know, uh, there are different ways of sitting where you, where, where, where you might not be hurting your body, and you can explore that. I think, I think some connection with the ground can be helpful, but the most important thing is they're connecting solidly with the ground, having the spine straight. Yeah. So sometimes sitting on a chair, it can be a little more helpful if you actually sit with your back free. You can experiment with that. So you have, maybe have a cushion right at the base of your, uh, your uh, lower back. So you have some way that you, there's some pressure there, and then you have your back free. That can also have, be a little more, uh, can sometimes be a stronger awareness. Yeah. Thanks. So especially, I think the, uh, I mean, we did go into this qu- question of attachment, but I think the main probably practical focus for us will be how can I be mindful of my body in daily life, right? That's really, so any questions especially about that? What helps or what did you, some of you did this practice, what did you find? Three weeks ago I said, be mindful of the body for the next three weeks, so. Please. Um, I didn't do that, but I, I kind of started practicing <laughs> awareness of the body when in, for dealing with anxiety, yeah. especially in social situations. Yeah. I found it remarkably helpful yeah. to come back and just to what, think about what is going on with the body yeah. in a situation that might cause anxiety, and it, it's pretty, it can be pretty helpful. Yeah, so mindfulness of the body as a way to uh, work with uh, anxiety, especially in social situations. and. You know, uh, last time I did quote, actually, from the teachings of the Buddha, where he says that mindfulness of the body is actually a way to overcome fear and dread and discontent, that it has, it has some grounding qualities. I think, I think we'd have to, you know, probably, that's probably going to be a little bit individual as to how to do that, but it's, it's uh, so much of uh, anxiety is driven by a storyline in which we are just in the mind, right? It's kind of taken us over. This is going to happen. Oh, my God. And, and we're actually uh, out of our bodies. So coming back to our bodies gives us a way that helps us to be more mindful with that storyline, for one thing. And that can dramatically reduce the anxiety. So that, I mean, is there something like that, what you experience? Yeah. Yeah, so, so that's because so, much of our, so many of our difficult emotions are connected with storylines where where the kind of the mind and the emotions are on runaway, right? And they're in loops. And when we can come back to the body, we can often at least have some way of seeing that more clearly, working with it, and then really um, grounding, you know, or practices like, uh, I think, just walking. Being with the earth, uh, or something like qigong or tai chi can also be very, very helpful. Yeah, so that's, that's a great... Mindfulness body has tremendous number of uh, uh, fruits, really. Including that, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Please. Well, um, I noticed in doing some of just the routine things in my daily yeah. life, 
good yeah. My ego, my pride. Yeah. So it was a comment uh, about uh, sitting on a chair versus a floor that a teacher suggested uh, looking at really the attitude behind wanting to be on the floor and what might there be something to look at and let go of, namely pride or attachment. And yeah, it, it can, I, I don't know if that's an issue for people here, but it sometimes is an issue for people on retreats and, and uh, think that there's something lesser about being in a chair, right? That the real meditators are, are there sitting cross-legged or whatever. Um, Huh? Miserable. Miserably miserable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, thank you. So, last one, um, please. No, I was, what, what I have tried to concentrate on is when I'm in the car is a time when I, che- I check out a lot. Yeah. So, being conscious of my hands on the wheel. Oh, yeah. And I just keep coming back to the feeling of my hands on the wheel, which puts myself back in the seat, which I just sort of say, I'm here. <laughs> because in the car, you know, you're on your list, you're at yeah. your next appointment, you're... And it really has helped me. That's beautiful. So reflections on um, one way to bring mindfulness body was to really have the hands just be on the steering wheel and just really feel that continually and simplify the experience. And again, so this we can be so creative just finding all these ways to do that and uh, to simplify and in some ways let go of the mind which says, okay, we sh- doesn't really doesn't really pose it as a an option that says we need to use this time to work out these details or that details. And we just say, I'm going to be mindful of the body in that time. It reminds me, and I'll, I'll, a story, I'll end with this, that there was, a, there was a Thai farmer who later became a great meditation teacher who wanted to start meditating. He was in his 50s before he started meditating. And he was a farmer and he did ride on a tractor. And he, he he needed, he had a lag time between the time he decided to become a monk and the time he could actually go away. He had to continue farming. And he just uh, just had this strong vow, let me just be aware of the hands on the wheel of the tractor. And he stayed with that for months and it, got, it was actually a very, very strong meditation. So that when he actually got to be the time to be a monk, he was able to actually to progress very quickly because he had just kept his hands on the wheel and been aware of that. And that in itself developed uh, very strong mindfulness and very strong concentration, you know. Um, so I, I... You keep coming back to the wheel as if you were coming back to the breath. Yeah. Just yeah, you, you just keep coming back to the wheel. When the mind wanders, you come back to the wheel. And it could be, again, it could be do that same thing with the dishes. You're just with the dishes. The mind wanders, you come back to the feeling of the hands with the water, the soap, whatever. You know, it's a little vaguer object, but you can do that. You can do all sorts of things in our daily lives. Um, and so the trick is to find ways to do that and really have the interest. I think try to, don't try to do everything at once, just do one thing at a time. Just focus on one thing at a time that you'll bring into the next um, week. That'd be my suggestion. So my suggestion would be, do the mindfulness of the breath, stay with that, be aware of the body, see what comes with your meditations. And then maybe one way to bring mindfulness of the body into daily life. Just choose one and really stay with that. So let me, let me finish with that and invite us just to sit quietly and see what comes to you as uh, your intentions 
for the next week. I hope that many of you uh, do really commit because we'll come back next week and we can also discuss what we found in our week of practice with, with um, mindfulness of the body. So what, what are your intentions for the next week? And then we end by remembering that we practice ourselves as a community. We do this for ourselves, but we also do this for others, for those of us here in this hall, for people we come in contact with, and then beyond Spirit Rock, beyond those we come in contact with, ultimately we do this for all beings in known and also in mysterious ways. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.